Peter chapter 5, verse 7. And just again, a uh, sort of a review of the face rest drill. And we've been looking at just simple, ordinary, basic promises of Scripture uh, with emphasis on the fact that we have to know these promises, have to know some of them, and we have to be able to recall these when we need them in, in our daily life. And as we recall these uh, in trying circumstances, um, we want to learn how to meditate and pick up the rationale that's embedded in these verses. And at the same time we do that, we want to confront the opposite, the unbelief, the paganism that surrounds our culture, that surrounds these, uh, in the world system around us, so that we have not just the faith rest drill, but we have the faith rest drill with what I call closure, meaning that there are no other alternatives left than this promise. And that's a, a good, strong uh, technique to approach uh, faith with. So, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 is, a, is another one of these great promises of Scripture. <coughs> and um, this one, I'll just read verse 7 and then we'll look at the context, is casting all your care or your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. And that word anxiety is just what it means. No hidden meanings in the original languages. That's exactly what it's saying, and it's talking about casting that anxiety upon him. And then it gives a rationale, and we want to look at that rationale, because he cares for you. But we start verse 7 with a continuation of verse 6. So we have to go back to verse 6, and in verse 6 we see what has to precede faith. Faith can never be arrogant. See if I can turn this on here and get it uh, focused. Um, this is our diagram that we've shown many times about arrogance and the spirit of, of unbelief. Um, let's see how we can do this here. Well, I'll figure out how to adjust it later. But the idea here is that Faith requires humility. And it gets back to nothing more, nothing less than what we said again and again and again and again, the creator-creature distinction. That's implicit in all of the Bible. And this humility, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, is simply assuming our position as creatures underneath the creator. And once that is done, then we can cast our care upon Him. And a lot of people uh, that I've met over the years who have kind of used this promise have argued that, well, sometimes I just can't cast anxiety upon the Lord. And uh, I tried that and it doesn't work. Well, I tried it because it's not applied in context. Verse 6 is the context. And the context is, humble yourselves first under the mighty hand of God, recognizing and, that who He is, who we are, and taking the position as believers that we are under His authority. And that's why at the end of verse 7, it says, because He cares for you. 
And we can't have the confidence that He cares for us if we don't humble ourselves under His mighty hand. Because there's always the thought that, well, He really doesn't care for us. Well, it's only as we uh, humble ourselves under His mighty hand that we know that He cares for us. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, which is also part of the rationale, and a good verse to introduce our lesson tonight with, is he introduces the background invisible angelic conflict that's going on. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And so, embedded in all this rationale is a struggle that goes on in the background. And this, one of these, this, this is one of the great promises of Scripture. And I'm just picking it out tonight. Um, if these are new to you, you want to know where these are located. We've so far covered uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. We've covered Romans 8, 28. And now we're working with 1 Peter 5, 7. These are just basic building blocks of everyday life. Now let's bow for a word of prayer as we begin our lesson. Father, we thank you again tonight for the salvation that you have shown us through your Son. We thank you for revealing your mind to us. And we ask that you would continue to correct us, to strengthen us, and to increase our faith. Because we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We thank you now through the risen, ascended, and seated Savior. In Christ's name, amen. We have been working um, in our lessons with the uh, ascent and session of Christ. The notes that you have handed out tonight complete this chapter. So with this uh, lesson and the one coming up next week, we'll finally finish up uh, the ascension and session of Christ. And we've said that the, the picture that you get out of this, the idea of judgment salvation that is shown in the Exodus, it's shown in the flood of Noah, that this judgment salvation is shown most clearly now with the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been reviewing this under the same topics that we used to review the flood of Noah and the uh, Exodus judgment. Big idea again, by way of review, is God never saves apart from judging. And God, when he judges, always includes salvation. And that's the story of grace from the beginning of creation to the last moment of history. We live in a fallen world, and there cannot be deliverance unless there's judging taking place upon the forces that are causing the salvation to be necessary. We've said that God always has grace prior to his judgment, and grace is demonstrated, we said, in the church age, in the inter-advent period, so far, 19 plus centuries, up to the point of his judgment, when he closes out the inter-advent age. And we've also said, of course, in personal lives, God demonstrates grace to a person who may live five years, 15 years, 32 years, 
72, 102. However long our lives are, that's the period of grace. And when we take our last breath, uh, opportunity for grace stops. Because at that point, there's no more repentance possible. The, the, this thing has been set. So life is sort of sobering when we think in this context that God has grace, but it's grace before judgment. Then we talked about perfect discrimination. And we talked about the fact that God doesn't judge statistically. He judges with surgical precision. And we use the word discrimination because one of the most misused and abused words in our day is the word discrimination. For some, well, it's not, it's not impossible to understand, but we have people using a vocabulary of manipulation. And it's, it's very stupid and very foolish because discrimination, uh, as I was talking to a House of Delegates uh, person, about this issue because of a vote that happened uh, a year or two ago. And we were discussing this word discrimination. And the, the whole issue before the House of Delegates was that we were going to do away with discrimination. And I said, excuse me, how do we do away with discrimination when you are the people that we pay to discriminate? Well, I got this blank look for an instant, and then I went on to follow up my statement. When you pass a law, doesn't the law discriminate? Isn't that the purpose of a law? To discriminate against those who obey and those who disobey. So every law is discriminatory. Every ethical principle is discriminatory. So can you say that discrimination is evil? Well, if it is, then we shouldn't have any laws. Well, clearly people don't mean that. And clearly people are very confused in how they use the word discrimination. So therefore, I use, always use it in these conversations because it always causes consternation and it precipitates some thinking as to what it means. Do, you know, do you discriminate? Of course, all the time. And I do it as a Christian. And I pray that I can be more discriminating. And usually when you drop that into a conversation, you get a little vibration at first, but good. Now people start to think, geez, maybe I am misusing the word discrimination and gets them to think through their position. Well, God discriminates. And God discriminates between those who believe the Lord Jesus Christ and those who reject Him. The point of discrimination, what settles the issue in the inter-Advent age, is what are we doing with Jesus Christ? And in our pluralistic American culture, this is going to increasingly become a bone of contention but it can be easily reversed in the conversation. If somebody accuses a Christian of discrimination because of Jesus Christ, turn right around and pick whatever they have and say, you're discriminating too. You're discriminating against Christ. See, because Christ doesn't allow you to be neutral. You have to believe or you have to disbelieve. So Jesus Christ is always the divider and he is the standard of discrimination. Then we said, in further to alienate people in a relativistic society, is there is only one way of salvation. And they'll say, well, that's just your opinion. No, it's not my opinion. And it wouldn't matter if it was my opinion. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, if you want to argue with Paul, argue with Paul. But I didn't write this, you know. This, was, this preceded me. 
the content of the gospel is a one-way salvation scheme. And there's a reason and a rationale. We studied that, right? Death of Christ. So here you go, you're the events. The death of Christ accomplished something. And what was the, what was the ba basic idea we learned back when we were talking about the death of Christ? Let's think this through now. What was the primary worldview issue that controls how a person approaches the death of Christ? Remember that? The primary thing is operating in the background that causes people when they, the issue of Christ and the cross come up, they go one of two ways. And if they go negative toward his work and come up with some bizarre reinterpretation of what the cross of Christ did, you can lay nine to one odds they're screwed up in their concept of justice. Remember that? The idea of justice underlies the cross. And if you have a, a fouled up, sloppy view of justice, you're going to have a fouled up, sloppy view of the cross of Christ. And that's why we have so many people sloppy in what they think about the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. Because they don't have a background of justice. Where do you get the background of justice? God's attributes. You see, the religions of the world who say there's no need for a substitutionary blood atonement in effect are saying something positive. They're saying that God has a compromisable stand of justice. That is, He can arbitrarily forgive. You know, just forget. That's all. No problem. Well, what happens to all the sin and... Well, it just gets kind of swept under the carpet. Oh, it does? Oh, so then therefore, the, the bad deeds aren't really significant. So if I blow your brains out today, you won't, you won't mind that. Because it's really not a significant act can be arbitrarily forgiven at any point in time. No problem. See, when you get down to the practical consequences, it's, it's just foolish. It's absolutely foolish. But you've got to kind of work with it to get folks to see that they've got a justice problem here. And that's why, if given the fact that God is a God of justice, who defines the way of salvation? He defines the way of salvation. And that's His way. You know, the challenge would be, come up with another way to be saved. Try it. Given the fact that you have the God of the Scriptures, given the fact that you have God who is just, God who is holy, God who is righteous, you would come up with a better way. Go ahead. Try it. So, this is the idea of the one way of salvation. Now we have come to the next stage, which is when God judges, He always judges man and nature. It's not just psychological. It's not just centered on the human being. We saw this with the flood, did we not? When God judged, He judged mankind and He judged the earth. And if 2 Peter 3 is to be taken seriously, he judged the cosmos. He judged the cosmos. In fact, I just am looking at a paper that's the chapter of a forthcoming book that the creation scientists have doing. For five years now, they've been studying the radioactive decay rate issue. And Dr. Humphreys um, has come up with a hypothesis about radioactive decay constant, not being constant. And he goes on to this paper and so on. One of the implications of the denial of the constancy of radioactive decay, which the reason why they're doing that, for those of you who might not realize it, all of the 
dogmatism about the universe being X billion years old and the earth being billions of years old comes off of an assumption. And the assumption is that radioactive decay has always remained the same. And people say, well, you know, we've tried changing it in the laboratory and it can't. Well, Humphreys points out, yes, you have. Radioactive decay constants have been changed in the laboratory. True, only a little bit. But the point is, it shows you it's not a constant. So here, once again, we're back to pagan speculation. Say, I deny the scriptures, can't believe the Bible, but I sure can make up all my constants. Speed of light has never changed. Oh, really? Well, you were around three billion years ago to check it out. Oh, but I just believe the speed of light is constant. I just believe radioactive decay rates are constant. Well, on what basis? You see, it gets back to the fact if a person is limited in their database, and every one of us is, including the most brilliant person, then you only know something is a constant inside that database, not outside of it. And nobody's database includes what happened a million years ago. So the idea that something has been constant for millions of years is a speculative hypothesis. And that's all right. Try it. You know, it's fun to speculate. But label it for what you're doing. Don't call it science. It's not science. It's a speculative statement that you made. So anyway, the point is that Humphreys in this paper is pointing out that certain things happened during the flood. And he's had a breakthrough, I think, on a number of passages of Scripture that suggests that the Scriptures themselves are talking about an accelerated decay rate. And he goes into various passages. But this is a forthcoming book, and the point I'm making tonight is that the flood was a cosmic catastrophe that had all kinds of implications. And God, when he judges, judges both man and nature. In the Exodus, he did that too. They were natural judgments. Now, here's where we're moving. In the inter-advent age, we're going to examine nature. And we're going to see that nature, that is, everything that's been created other than man, includes a material and an immaterial component. And the immaterial component are angels, corporeal beings that have a strange, transmutatable character. And we're going to look at that in several verses as we go on. We've already looked at some of these verses. Uh, one of the key ones we looked at last time is Psalm 104, verse 4, where it's clear that the statement is being made that angels can transform themselves from corporeal beings into physical phenomena like fire and wind. And for all the intents and purposes, it looks like fire, wind, and smoke, just like the top of Mount Sinai. It looks like fire, wind, and smoke. When you look at it in Exodus, come over to Stephen's speech in Acts 7, he's talking about, no, that's, that wasn't just smoke and fire, that was angels. Well, I didn't see any angels. All I saw was smoke and fire. You saw angels. Well, the only way you can make sense of that kind of scripture, observations, is that the physical phenomena actually is angelic beings. Now, how they transmute from, from uh, eating steak in Lot's house to becoming a wind or becoming a flame, I have no idea. The scriptures are just saying that is part of their nature to do that. But from our purposes, we don't care how they do it. We're just pointing out that angels are included right here in nature. And when God judges man and nature in the inter-advent period, the angels are being implicated.
So we, that's what we want to go into now is the background of the angels. And on page 17 of the notes, I covered how angels were present through Israel's history and how you can't write history and study history without automatically getting yourself involved in angelic interaction. Now, Karl Marx had a theory that history was driven by economic forces alone. And we've had Hegel with his theory about the progression of the great spirit. And this was supposed to be the progress in history. Well, the Bible has another aspect to history, and that is that it's angelically... It won't use the word driven, because God is sovereign. But angels are implicated in historic acts. And one of the great places to see this, and we've turned here before, but again to review, is 1 Kings 22. There's a lot of material in this passage. Commentators like to hit Greece when they come across passages like this. But it's here in the Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, so I presume that he intended us to learn something from it. And in 1 Kings 22, verse 17, the Old Testament prophet Micaiah reports on something that he saw, a vision. Micaiah said, Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord, Yahweh, sitting on his throne. So we, we, he got a glimpse of this throne room, wherever it is. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And notice it says, all the host of heaven. And the host of heaven here are the angelic beings. And the words for the host of heaven are also used for the planets and stars. And this is why people say, well, that's, is that planets? No, it's not planets and stars. But the angels somehow are involved in that. Now, I have no idea how they become fire and wind. I don't know. But they're involved somehow. I saw the Lord sitting on his hand, all the host of heaven sitting by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, and one said another. Now, this is very interesting. Notice what is happening here. You have all the host of heaven. This is a meeting of all the angels. The Lord is the, is the chairman here of the meeting. And he throws out the, the, for discussion. It's very interesting. The Lord throws out a proposal. I want to see who, who's going to do, do an interesting task. I want, I want task done here. Ahab is going to be judged. And I want to grease his slide. Who's going to do, be the grease boy here in this thing? And it's interesting that the angels discuss this among themselves. The challenge is given... And there's an active discussion. Notice the Lord doesn't say, you do it this way. The angels are given an opportunity to think through how to accomplish what the Lord proposes. Now, isn't this an amazing point of history? You can't go from T1 to T2, in other words, two time points in history, without intersecting this angelic council here now, all of a sudden. So how does history move from this point to this point? It moved because of an angelic meeting that happened. Now, if you look at the content, a spirit comes forth. There's so much in this pad we can't even touch on it other than just skim it. 
But look, look, just look at the broad outline. A spirit comes forth. So here's one of these guys shows up and he says, okay. He stood before the Lord and says, I will entice him. So he's got an idea. And he makes a proposal to God. And the Lord said, how? Explain yourself, in other words. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. That means hundreds of people. Which leads us to the other interesting phenomena that angels can multiply and divide. They can split up. Now, how they do this, we don't know, other than you know from the New Testament that you've written, the read, what about legion? What about the demons that went in all the pigs? Now, how do they split up and go like that? Well, the analogy between spirit and the Bible, the word ruach, or the word pnefma, the word for spirit is interchangeably used for wind in the atmosphere. And the problem we have in the atmosphere is that we can conceive of the atmosphere as a set of parcels. But these parcels multiply and divide. And you can't get your hands around what the parcel of air is that you're trying to do your physics thing with. So it's a gas. It's a fluid. So the angels have such a nature that the only vocabulary word that describes them that God uses, and he says, when I tell you about spirits and angels, I'm going to use the same word for a physical phenomenon that you all see. And that is the wind. So, there's some analogy between how the wind works that we can see a little bit of, and how these angels work. And we cannot explain it. But the angels have this power. So here's one spirit, and he just says, I'm one spirit. But I will become hundreds of spirits in the mouth of his prophets. Also notice in this sentence that he says, I will be in the mouth of the prophets. Now, what does it mean to be in the mouth of the prophet? What is the pro mouth used for? To speak. To speak what? Language. Ah. Oh. Isn't this interesting? We'll see more about this after New Year's when we get into Pentecost. Spirit and language are related. And so, how does the Spirit entice? It entices linguistically. This is not some Spookville phenomena where the prophets see visions and so on. That they, It's actual deception, a linguistic deception that's happening here. Language is a result of a spirit. Remember, we in first in Proverbs it says uh, of the teacher, "I pour out my spirit." And what else? Parallelism. I make my words known. Two synonymous things. I pour out my spirit, and I make my words known. Well, you know what making your words known when you say words, then there's ideas transmitted here. Well, the the spirit is involved in this. It's not material. Let's think about it this way. Maybe if it's, if it's hard to think this way, think about it this way. When we talk about good, love, evil, bad, any idea, is that idea something that is physically measured? See, this is the problem atheist materialists have. They're always talking about logic. They're always talking about language. But what the problem they have is that it can't be smelled, it can't be touched, it can't be measured. Now, isn't this an interesting thing? 
Here we have meaning, words, all kinds of things, none of which can be empirically tested, none of which can be empirically measured, I mean. There's no physics to them. There is no physical nature to any idea. It's completely immaterial. Now, if you pursue that line of thinking, that'll lead you to this union of language and spirit. And so what he does here in verse 22 is this spirit is going to set up a false doctrine that is going to afflict the whole northern kingdom. And he's going to do it by infiltrating and somehow deceptively controlling the thought processes and speech of many, many influential people in that culture. And only one spirit needs to do it. Now that's kind of scary about manipulation of a social order, is it not? One spirit can deceive an entire community of people. That's what this verse is saying. No getting around, not my opinion. That's what this verse is saying. There's no other interpretation here possible. So we have an entire social order of hundreds of people that actually are controlled by one demonic force. This is the origin of a mob. A mob has a nature all unto itself. And people, I've never worked with it, but I've been told by people who've had to deal with mobs that there's something sinister that takes over that short-circuits people of normal common sense. Just go with the mob. It's a mob reaction. How does that happen? We don't know how it happens, but people who have been there know it happens. So here we have a religious, apostate mob that is going to run the northern kingdom. And the Spirit says, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull this off for you, Lord. And they're all going to have the same deception. They're going to get this guy to go into battle so he can get killed. So it's going to be a mob, religious mob, influencing national leadership. Now, therefore, verse 23, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit. This is the commentary, Micah. See, he concludes his vision. And, oh, and by the way, then the Lord said at the end of verse 22, he said, you are to entice him and prevail. Go. Go and do it. And then Micah, his comments again, verse 23, comes back to Micah. The Lord has put a, notice, singular, a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, plural. Now let's think about one little application here. What does this politically say about an axiom of democracy? Democracy says what? Majority is always right. Was the majority always right here? Was the majority right when Christ was crucified? What happens then? See, behind the spirit of raw democracy is, as it says, it's vox populi, vox dei. The voice of the populace, the voice of the mob, is the voice of God. And you know who said that? The French Revolution. That's the spirit of democracy. See, that's why America is not a democracy, was never intended to be a democracy, and that's why we have something called the Constitution. Not a perfect solution, right. 
but it's a flywheel, like on a machine. It acts as a conservator against a mob that's going like this. So, see, there's a lot in Scripture, and you've got to approach it slowly and think it through and dare to take it to its consequences. Well, let's go further into this angelic thing. We already studied last time Daniel 10, and we said how the angel came to Daniel, you remember, and it took three weeks. Let's just review that one, because this again is a sobering view of history that you will never get in a textbook. I heard of a very clever thing the other day about, you know, the, in public, certain public offices you can't say certain things because, you know, the separation of church and state principle. And uh, this person was using the following technique to get around it, and it's perfectly legal. You can say that I'm forbidden in this place by the law to pray in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, that's what, isn't that what they told me to do? That I cannot, you, we all cannot pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the uh, ACLU or something. And see, they can't get you, because the sentence is a correct sentence, is it not? They said that you cannot pray. So, I just repeated the sentence. I cannot pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Say it five or six times. But, and it becomes a joke. It becomes so silly that people realize what you said, but there's not a person that can, can come against you. Not a person. There's no way they can attack you because the sentence is perfectly truthful. You're just repeating what the lawyer told you to repeat, what the court told you to do. And so these are some of the little greasy ways you can fight back. You don't have to hide in a corner. I mean, come on. In the Old Testament, people were able to end-run the law of God. Now, with a little spiritual creativity, we ought to be able to end-run any law that man makes to suppress the gospel. It ought to be easy. We just have to be creative about it. Do it lawfully. Do it, you know, submissively. But this is a chess game, folks. And the other side is disarmed. They haven't got any bullets in their gun. It's all a big farce. Because they haven't got any reasons for what they believe. They can't ethically justify what they believe. They don't have a standard of truth that they can actually stand on. And we're intimidated by the hot air and baloney? Shouldn't be at all. This is the baloney people talking here. They haven't got a platform to stand on. It's absolutely ridiculous. It would be funny if it, the consequences tragically and personalized or weren't so grievous. But in Daniel chapter 10, here in history, verse 13, that angel that came through into the airspace, and that's what it is. It's coming into the airspace of Persia. Look what he says. And you have a map. I can't draw Persia here, but let's just say this is the, this is the territory in Daniel, okay? Now, if we were to think in three dimensions, above that country is the spirit of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. We don't know what the dimensions look like, but Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 says that the kingdom, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, he's not talking about the human prince of the kingdom of Persia, is he? This is an angel talking. He's talking about something else that's the prince of the kingdom of Persia, was withstanding me for 21 days. Now, count that. 
21 days. For three weeks, a battle went on where this angel, here's Daniel down inside the country praying, and this angel is coming from the throne of God to answer Daniel and talk to him. And the reason he has to talk to him because he has to interpret visions. Remember, one of the, one of the features of apocalyptic literature, that is, literature written in the style like Book of Revelation, certain passages in Zechariah, Daniel, is that you will always find as a corollary to that genre of, of, of literature is that there's an interpreting angel there. Along with the visions, there's an interpreter. So the angel had to get to Daniel because Daniel's going to get the vision, but Daniel isn't going to understand the vision. So by the way, once again, we have an angel with meaningful linguistic capabilities. He's going to come in and talk to Daniel down here. So it takes him three weeks to go in here. And look what he says, why it took him three weeks. He says, Behold, Michael, one of the chief princes. So now we have rank. So here's one of the guys that, that pulls rank on whoever the prince of the king of Persia is. Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings, plural, of Persia. So all kinds of stuff going on here, and the Bible doesn't go into great detail because God doesn't want us to get spooky about all this. He just wants to let us know that if we think we're living in a two-dimensional world, we're nuts. There's a spiritual world of, of, that's out there of intrigue, and it's involved in history. So that's a summary of the angelic forces in nature associated with Israel. Now we go to Genesis chapter 6. So you'll turn back all the way to Genesis 6. We're going to deal with... In fact, let's go all the way back to Genesis 3. We're going to deal with angels in the realm of nature between the creation and the flood. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 24... Here's the, what functioning, one of the angels functioning, or several of them. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubs, plural. In English, you see the cherubim, I am in the plural. Uh, Hebrew is plural. He stationed the cherubs and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction, to guard the way to the tree of life. Who has the power of capital punishment here? Sword angels. Now we want to trace this because this is a very important element in reasoning through as to the ascent of Christ and what he's doing. I want you to notice and pick up from scripture a certain association. Notice that angels have a power, uh, well, well here we'll just say the sword. Let's just leave it here. Angels and sword. Now come forward a little bit to uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. Didn't take long for the first murder to happen. Verse 8, first murder. If you interpret the book of Jude carefully, you're talking about the verb slay, which means knife, which means the first murder was committed by knife. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? 
And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And here's the rise of a nomadic tribe of people. Nomadic because they are resisted by nature. Here's the guy saying that God, I mean, we can't get around this text either. God is, is judging Cain, but he's also judging the earth here under his feet. Because the earth will rebel against him. Just as the earth originally was given to rebel against Adam at the fall, now it's going to rebel even more against Cain. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. <coughs> Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground. See, he's alienated from the ground. And he becomes a nomad, wandering from place to place. Because the call of man was the call to domesticate. The call of man was the call to till the garden. And now Cain has lost his call. The, the, he is damned by the ground itself against his feet. And he becomes, he has no call. He just wanders and wanders and wanders. In essence, he, he becomes the first hippie of history. Thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer. And I'll come to pass that whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. So the Lord promises a protection upon Cain in that whoever touches this man, they will be judged in a similar way. How was Cain judged? By the ground rebelling against him. Well, then how is someone going to be judged who, judges, who tries to attack Cain? In many ways, but it would suggest that God is going to judge them the same way by making the earth rebel against them even more. And this is why I have the quote on page 18 in the notes that um, down the bottom of it was this is a little added insight that's recently come up in a lot in some creationist writings that the earth between the time of the fall and the time of the flood may have experienced catastrophes, not in the same order as the flood, of course, but a lot of judgment going on there. Turmoil. The pre-flood world was a time of exceptional divine interventions upon the earth. Even in post-flood times, when God takes a strong hand to show his displeasure over sin, floods, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and plagues are cited in Scripture. When God dwelt, dealt with the ancient Israel as a theocracy, he stressed that punishment on the covenant people would be given with increased intensity. This increasing degree of punishment in order to bring about repentance seems indicative of how the Lord has acted in history towards sin. The account of the pre-flood world is brief in Scripture, but divine activity appears to have been even more forceful in the pre-flood world before God sanctioned human government to act on his behalf in dealing out punishments. So we have the angels possibly involved here, though it's purely speculative that they were actually involved in material cursing. But I just want you to see that between the time of the flood and the time prior to that, there was this judgment going on. God judging man through nature. Now we come down to Genesis chapter 6. And the angels at this point are called Benihah Elohim, the sons, the divine sons, the sons of God. 
saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. And the Lord said, my flesh, and so on, and the Nephilim were in the earth, and so on. So something's going on there, too, that's weird. And what we want to pick up here is another connotation about angels. And they are called Elohim. They can be called gods, small g. One might be able to, and this is speculation, you could speculate that what was going on here is that the angels were actually provincial rulers in the Andalusian period. That they had some sort of governmental responsibilities, perhaps, and because they interacted with the human race. Now, you could say, what a spooky civilization that was. We have angels interacting with the human beings on this planet. Well, what are we saying the Millennial Kingdom is about? Resurrected people interacting with non-resurrected people. So I was making the same claim about the millennium. And apparently something like that was going on here. The gods were walking with men. This also, if this is so, and I believe it is, this answers the high technology question. Where did Noah and the colonists that set up our present civilization get navigation, get clocks, get geometry, and get all these things? They, this is one of the problems, one of the enigmas of, of civilization. Where did this high technology come from? The unbeliever is driven to such desperate attempts to explain high technology in ancient civilization that they want to say, well, the astral people came to this planet. Extra well, in one sense, they're kind of close to, close to the truth. Maybe astral people did come to this planet in the form of angels and teach man his high technology. But whatever it was, other things happened. And in verse 2, you have this sexual intercourse going on between angels and men. And you have a rise of this weird group called the Nephilim. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Notice it's human females and angelic males. And out of this, we have a genetic manipulation going on. And more than... Jesus Christ had to have genuine humanity. And he had to be born of the seed of the woman. And all you needed to do was contaminate the whole genetic system of reproduction, everything else, and you screwed up the whole plan of salvation. A brilliant move that was being made here. But God, as a superior chess player, played his counter move. And he caused the flood to happen and the end of that little experiment. So, angels were involved in that weird thing. Now let's go back further in time. We've, we've looked at angels with Israel. We've looked at angels in this Antediluvian period. Now, Job chapter 38. And we're going to go back into the origin of creation itself. In Job 38, 7, during creation, the angels sang. Verse 7 of Job chapter 38. When the morning stars, and there's the word for stars. So we want to make another little point on our list. Angels and sword, angels and gods, angels 
and stars and planets. Those identities are deliberately put in Scripture for reasons which we don't really know, but we observe the text. So the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. See, there's the word sons of God for those people who say the sons of God in Genesis 6 were human beings. These aren't human beings in verse 7, Job 38. So at this point it says all the sons of God were shouting for joy. They were rejoicing. There's no sign of sin in the angelic realm at the point of Job 38, 7. There's no Satan rebelling. All the angels are together with no bifurcation. But it wasn't long before the fall happened in the angelic realm. So we turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. We want to look at that. That's the, real, the part of the Bible that's never read. Ezekiel 28. Here, a prophecy is made against the king of Tyre. I want you to notice something. Here we go again. Now we have angels and political leaders. Okay. The prophecy is against a physical king of Tyre, verse 12, of, of, of the 28th chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28:12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God. Now, what is happening here is what is happening elsewhere in Scripture. It seems a little weird here, but it shouldn't be. If you think about it, David, when he writes Psalm 22, he's crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But what persona is David taking on? He's taking on the messianic persona. So there's an identity that happens at Psalm 22 between the human King David and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all sense that. The same thing happens here, except on the other side of the moral fence. Here, the king of Tyre is being addressed, but actually, the force in and behind this man is being addressed. So, the dialogue looks weird if you're going to think the dialogue is directly against the king of Tyre. It's a poetic rendition of a prophecy using the same analog approach that Psalm 22 uses where David takes on the persona of Christ. Here, the king of Tyre takes on the persona of Satan. Now, the prophet Ezekiel addresses him. And he says, and he gives a lot of information about how evil began in the angelic realm. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, he's talking about Satan here. Satan left the hand of God when he pronounced everything was good. Satan left the hand of God full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and he goes on, big long list. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub. Now look at that word. Guess what the word anointed is there? Messiah. You are the messianic cherub. That's the word that's later used for Jesus Christ. You were the messianic cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless. Notice verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until, until unrighteousness was found in you. And there's the origin of sin. So, and then he goes on to talk about sin in a commercial context, by the way. Verse 16, 17, trade and world economics. Just like the book of Revelation brings in sin being tied in with Babylon and the, all the international dealings and so on that go on. So, he is the God of this world. But notice, angels and political leaders as the power behind them. Now let's turn to Isaiah 14. Another passage with another political leader who is being, uh, who, who takes on the persona of Satan again. This time not at the hand of Ezekiel, but at the hand of Isaiah. Notice the theme. Just repeat the theme over and over and over and over again. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah takes up this prophecy and he says against this king he says that uh, let's look at um, verse 10 your pomp or verse 11 your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to hell maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering how you have fallen from heaven and by the way, just in context, verse 4, who is this? The king of Babylon. Just like the other guy was the king of Tyre, here's the king of Babylon. And he takes on the persona of Satan. He says, How you've fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, star of the dawn. You know the title Peter uses for the Lord Jesus Christ in his epistle? The bright and morning star. There's no accident that the vocabulary words once used of Satan are now used of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not accidental. Something is happening here. You have fallen, the star of morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. Notice his global ministry. You have weakened the nations, plural, not just one, all of them. But you said in your heart, now verse 13 and 14, this is the greatest passage on sin and arrogance that you ever want to read. And when you think, and we have, when the Lord leads you to examine your own heart for sin, this is a great passage. Because this is the essence of sin. It's not immorality. It's not theft. It's not something else. It goes a lot deeper than those things. Those things are results of sin and they're particular styles of sin. 
But the essence of sin is right here. So this is a key passage of Scripture you want to remember. Here it is. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And what are the stars of God? That's that assembly again that we saw back in 1 Kings 22. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like most high. I, 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 I. Nobody else. It's not his environment, please notice. Sin didn't start because of the environment. Sin didn't start because of poverty. Sin didn't start because somebody was not educated. Sin started because of arrogance. And this is the examination of Scripture as far as sin goes. The origin has nothing to do with economics. It has nothing to do with your physical environment. It has everything to do with who we are and our attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. That's the issue. And we can try to blame this, blame Mother. She dropped my, me on my head when I was a baby or something. And all the other excuses that come up. Now I'll we'll say, oh, it's my genes. Oh, if it's your genes, how is it you explain the first sin then? God malfunctioned Eve's and Adam's genes? I don't think so. Sin doesn't start because of genes. Sin starts because of a decision and a choice to rebel against God and arrogate to ourselves absolute power. And that's it, in a nutshell, right there. That's sin. So Satan's sin and the fall and the origin of evil has, has to do right here with an attitude. And that attitude is often uh, repeated interestingly and paradoxically, in the very people who are fussing about evil in the world. It's amazing to listen that we are going to solve this problem. It is going to be man's solution. We are going to have a global this or a global that, and we're going to solve this, and we're going to solve that, and we are going to make civilization safer and so forth and so on. It's the same arrogance, same thing as this. And it's often couched in the language of good, moral, and religious principles. Satan here isn't some slut. He doesn't come up on drugs. He's not some crook. He's just arrogant. And that's what the sin issue is. And that's why it's so painful to sometimes read this passage, because it shows you how easily we can all be infected with this stuff. I'm reminded, in, in closing time, I'm reminded of a story that um, uh, Chuck Colson puts in one of his books of, of uh, the Eichmann trial that went on in Israel. And of course, when they were trying Eichmann, you remember the Israeli Mossad grabbed him out of Argentina and brought him back. And in this trial, he was behind bulletproof glass. And here were the Israeli security forces ensuring that Eichmann was never going to escape or that he would be shot or something by some angry Jew. They were protecting Eichmann with his glass. And one of the key points in the trial was they had to bring a Jewish uh, survivor of the Holocaust who happened to have lived underneath Eichmann and, and to be an eyewitness. To, yeah, I saw this guy. This is the real Eichmann. And he did this and he did that and he did so forth. Well, I had this old, old Jewish man, and he came up just prior to the, to the glass structure where Eichmann was standing, or sitting, or whatever, 
And the guy came up, and as he came up to give his testimony at the trial, he happened to turn around and look over at Eichmann. And the moment he looked over at Eichmann, he collapsed right on the floor. And uh, just went into a, a weeping hysteria. And so after the, he recovered and he gave his testimony, and afterwards the reporters asked him, what happened? Why did you freak out when you came up here to see Eichmann? Now this is the chilling answer the man gave. He says, I walked into that trial, he says, all my life I've thought of the day of revenge for, for, on Eichmann. I can remember as a young boy, him killing my mother, killing my father, slaughtering people. And I, and I envisioned this man as a demon. And I walked into the courtroom and I looked at him and he was an ordinary man. And all of a sudden, he said, it was like a revelation in my heart. All of a sudden, I realized that we could all be Eichmanns. That was why I collapsed on the floor. It's because it wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't have horns. He didn't have a pitchfork. He was an ordinary person that we could meet on the street, never even recognize him. That was the evil man. And so, that's the insidious nature of sin. And what we want to do now as we go on and examine this, if we see how serious the sin issue is, it goes far beyond the human race people. Far, far beyond human civilization. It's embedded into the very background of nature itself. You see, when we talk now about Jesus Christ bringing in his kingdom, we're not just talking about a political, a mere surface political program here. No, no. We're talking about something that has to come to grips with the spiritual principalities and powers in the background that have been sitting in the background for centuries, sabotaging the nations, working their conniving little effect, becoming deceiving spirits, splitting apart and organizing religious mobs. These are the powers and the principalities. And so, when we read in the New Testament, and this is where we're headed, we have to reconcile this angelic conflict that we see with the ascended, resurrected Christ. What does it mean when it says, now he sits far above all these things, the principalities and powers? What has changed? And that's what we want to focus in on. What has changed from before the, the hour that the Lord Jesus walked into the throne room of God and God said, sit down, my right hand. What happened at that point? The significance of it. And if we can get that, we can drive forward through the whole church age and get some drive and impetus to what God is doing between the first and the second advents. Whatever he's doing, it has implications in this angelic conflict and we cannot interpret the church age if we do not handle this background. So, if you read the notes through page 21, uh, there's a chart on page 21, and there's another chart on page 22, where I've attempted to show you the role of Jesus Christ in the ascension, and why there's certain things and procedures and progress that's being made over the years. Father, we thank you now that we have a complete salvation package, that the Lord Jesus Christ has completely and totally finished it. And now we're going to watch the details play out in time. We're going to see how the strategic victory of your son comes out in tactical victory after tactical victory throughout the church age. 
We ask that you would illuminate our hearts, and not just illuminate our hearts, but motivate them. Put fire in us, the energy of motivation, as we realize our high and lofty position with a risen Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. We uh, introduce some material that might be new to some of you. I don't, I don't know, though, if you've been around Bible teaching circles, it's probably not that new. But um, it's uh, some of the contextual material that I think we want to study to give us perspective on the uh, seated, what it means to, for Christ to be seated above the principalities and powers. So are there any questions you'd like to throw out? Yes, Debbie. Uh, in the uh, Genesis 6 passage, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it explains who these Nephilims are, but then it, it has this one statement that has always been intriguing to me. I wasn't the words of it. They were only earth in those days, but mm-hmm. also afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you could just yeah, the, the issue there is that what does that phrase mean in Genesis 6 where they were on the earth afterward. And apparently, again, we have only the bare data of Scripture to look at here, but um, they are, there's a group of genetically weird people that show up in the conquest period. And that they're called by various names. Anakim is one of them. And where they come from, nobody knows. But they are giants. Um, They perpetuate themselves somehow. Now, obviously, if they came afterwards, and afterward means the flood, and if they could only be produced by this uh, genetic manipulation that was going on, then we have to conclude that there must have been some genetic manipulation going on after the flood in sort of a maybe a mini version of what happened before the flood. Uh, but the Bible doesn't give any information about that other than there is a small set of these people that occupied the area of the ancient Near East. And it might be that the author of Genesis, Moses being the final editor, that that section in Genesis 6 you're talking about is sort of like a commentary that is written from the perspective after the flood. They were back then and and even afterward. So I, I can't really answer why... Uh, who they were, other than there, there was a series of descendants of these Anakim, and you can trace them, because I did one time, all through the book of Deuteronomy, and you can trace them into the judges period. And ultimately, I think you can trace it all the way down to Goliath and his brothers. And wh- what these people were, uh, they had, they had, they had uh, the wrong number of fingers on their hands, um, so they were, they were genetically distorted somehow. Now, how they ever got started after the flood, when you think God would have taken care of and not made that happen again, I don't know. It's, it, commentators have tied the in particular angelic forces that were responsible in Genesis 6-3 to a place called Tartarus. It's mentioned in the book of Jude. That when Christ... Uh, died, he descended to hell, as the creeds say, and he preached, and, and except the word there is not preach the good news. It's caruso, means to uh, announce, make an announcement. 
So in the Bible it says he preached to the fallen in Tartarus. Well, he did more than preach. He announced something. And the Bible doesn't tell us what he announced. People have speculated, and it is speculation, that he went to hell, to Tartarus, descended into the very depths of hell to announce to them that he had made it. And maybe they're shut in to the point where they don't, they can't observe history. That particular group of angelic beings are shut up. Um, angels are shut up because in the book of Revelation it says one of them, or a group of them, uh, are shut up in the Tigris-Euphrates river system. Well, what does it mean to shut up an angel in the Tigris-Euphrates river system? I have no idea. It's just that, that God seems to have imprisoned in some weird way to us these beings and and they can be loosed and that's what causes some of the tribulational judgments at the, at the, during the tribulation period just prior to Christ's return um, it's just so many strange things about history I think the lesson we have to learn from this is we really don't know much what we're talking about when it comes to history we always like to reconstruct history and have nice little charts and that's not bad we, we, you know, we have to have some organization but to sit back and say that this couldn't have happened or that couldn't have happened. We don't know enough to say that it couldn't have happened. I have no idea. So, just part of the reminder that the scriptures drop into our laps from time to time that we, this, strange things happen in God's world. Real strange things. People have seen visions over the historical period of angelic beings. And it's interesting that uh, somebody once did a study of this in the mission field. And it's interesting that in most cases the angelic beings were not observed by the people they were helping. They were observed by other believers or they were observed by unbelievers. Uh, one of the great stories that came out of the Vietnam War was the Montagnards, who are a deeply dark race in Vietnam and discriminated against by the lighter-skinned Vietnamese. And uh, the Montagnards had been penetrated by the missionaries. I forgot which group of missionaries did this, but there had been quite a few Christian Montagnards when the Vietnam War started. And of course, the communists went in and killed them all. Uh, but in this one instance, um, to me, reading around in mission works, this seems to be quasi-typical. Um, the Montagnard, a Christian Montagnard village was surrounded by the Viet Cong, and they knew they were going to get mortared, and so they didn't have any weapons, so they got together for prayer, and nothing ever happened. I think one round came in, and boom, and that was it. And uh, so later on, um, the GIs beat back one of these Viet Cong groups and, and captured some of them. And in interrogating, the normal going through the interrogation of prisoners of war, you know, find their unit, find what they were doing, what the strategies are, who their leaders are, this sort of stuff. They'd gone through and they said, um, why didn't you take a village such and such, such and such, on such and such a night? And they said, well, we're going to do it. And he said, the problem was that you guys came in there and, uh, and we saw too many, too many strange soldiers. And the 
the guy that was doing the interrogating said, wait a minute, and I looked back in the reports and none of our units were in the area that night. Uh, so who were these people? And nobody knows who the people were, except for the fact that the Viet Cong were scared by this numerous group of people they saw. Now, who were the people? And the Montagnards didn't know it either. None of them observed this. The only people who observed it were the attackers. So now maybe that's something like in the Book of Kings, you know, where the prophet says, O Lord, open my servant's eyes that he may see the armies around us. Um, that happens. So uh, it's always there. It's always in the background of Scripture. And that's why, what we're trying to address. And we're trying to address it now because as we start the church age in our study, we have to cope with Christ's rank above this. Oh, yeah. What that does, in talking about the Millennial Kingdom and the binding of Satan, that is precisely what I'm getting at here when I said, you can't bring the Kingdom in unless you deal with this background effect. Uh, Jesus could set up a world government tonight, and it would fail. It would fail. Primarily because the, the evil powers are at work. And stirring up trouble. Always going to stirring up trouble somewhere. And that's how these world conflicts get started. It's not just humans that are involved in this stuff. And so what, you, what has to happen in order for that millennial kingdom to take place is that those powers have to be suppressed. And it's interesting that when they are suppressed, the environment changes. So now it shows you this issue of of they, they are interacting with our present environment. I don't know how, but they, they somehow do it. And so when we premillennialists are accused by the rest of the church of being these ultra-spiritual, literal interpreters, all we're trying to do is be consistent. And this is why later on you'll see, I'm going to give you three appendices to this pamphlet, one of which I'll try to get to you uh, just the, the last class we have before Christmas. I'm going to give out one on Reformed theology versus dispensational theology. But one of the, one of the later sections is going to be one on um, uh, the social agenda of the body of Christ, which I'm going to take on the liberal position where, you know, and deal with that issue, where they want to make the church a vehicle of social transformation, and they always wanted the church to get in this crusade and that crusade and some other crusade. And one of the reasons, as you can anticipate, is that it's, it's putting the cart before the horse. You can't introduce these great grandiose schemes of social redemption unless you cope with the powers behind this, this evil world. And while that seems anemic, because you'll have your aggressive, reformed, post-millennialists arguing, oh, you pre-males, you're all pessimistic, you're impotent, you don't have any cultural impact, and all the rest of it. Actually, we have a great cultural impact, and we'll see why. Because if the culture is dominated by satanic powers, then it's people who stand firmly on the Word of God who are actually coming into active conflict with the powers that are, that are causing this stuff. 
So it's interesting that you can have political and social effects without causing political and social campaigns. And it gets back to simple things like, quote, simple things, like prayer. Think of what Daniel's prayer did. Daniel's prayer caused a penetration of the entire kingdom of Persia by one of God's highest angels. Just one man praying. Now, pull that one off with a, with a, you know, have a million man march in downtown Persia somewhere. Is that going to accomplish what Daniel's prayer accomplished in that situation? I don't think so. So, the irony of all this is, is that after the church gets reduced to not being a political agenda group, not starting crusades, and by the way, I'm not saying the church can't speak out. I'm just saying that the church is not going to bring in the millennium by those techniques. So it gets back to humble basics. Leading a person to Jesus Christ, one on one, and claiming the promises that this faith rest drill that we're talking about, now you're starting to see why I brought that in. Because every time I'm in a mess and I listen to the Spirit, and I don't always do that, if I listen to the Spirit and I respond to that situation by trusting the Scriptures, I've knocked out ground in the invisible realm. There's been a transaction there. And you do that, same thing. As a Christian, you stand firm. You stand on the promises. You refuse to be deceived. You refuse to go what appearance says. You go with the Word of God. And when that happens things go on in the invisible realm. And you're not going to be aware of it. I'm not going to be aware of it. The pastor's not going to be aware of it. But, but it's happening. And that's all we need to know. It happens. There's ripples that come out from you as you take your position. And as you lead people to Christ, every time you lead someone to Jesus Christ, there's a casualty for Satan. Because now somebody's been transformed from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Guess who lost? That one. Why does Satan fight so hard to take the Word of God out of the heart of people? You know, the Scripture says he does that. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want to lose anybody. Why? Because he wants to make a case. And you talk about all the lawyers going to Florida. Well, when we get through here, you'll see uh, the lawyers going to heaven. And the lawyers are called angels here in this process. You know what the word Satan means? It's a prosecutor. Satan tries to prosecute believers before God. He accuses us before God as violating God's righteousness. And it gets into a drama of the fact that the only what we are guilty, but there's one who substituted for us. So this vindicates God's character because what Satan's trying to do, I believe, down through history is he is trying to continually impugn the character of God. Because he's got to make a case that God cannot judge him without judging us. See, he, he's, he's arguing that it's unjust for God to judge. Because after all, you let this person off, you let this person off, you've got to let me off. And I think a lot of that's involved in all this. I'll show you some passages that suggest that. But there's a case being made, and the power of all this is, is that when we step out in faith in the Word of God, we are taking a position that vindicates God's character.
because we're refusing to do it His way, Satan's way, and we're doing it God's way, even if it means we suffer. We're doing it God's way, so we may suffer in time, but in eternity a case is made. So if you think of the Christian life as making a case, it's a legal argument that's being waged all in the background here. And we're walking pieces of evidence, so to speak. You know, we're the little chads, shall we say in this case, that are being used in a larger context. Your life may look like this to you, but it's part of a big thing here going on. And so you want to be encouraged by that. Anything else? Well, let's... Uh, um, we'll break for tonight and next week if you'll, we'll try to finish up the notes that we handed out and then uh, well yeah I'll, f- I'll try to finish up the next and give the notes out for this appendix I'm talking about hopefully and uh, we, won't, we won't even get through that the first couple of pages but you'll have it over the holidays and then we'll take a break for, a, for I guess two weeks or something like that we'll talk about it next week